Welcome to episode 43 of the Web 2.0 show. This week we have Kathy Sierra with us, helping users kick ass. I'm your host, Josh Owens. And I'm Adam Stukowiak. The Web 2.0 show profiles the hottest people behind the latest web services. Today we have Kathy Sierra with us from headrush.typepad.com. That's what I said, right? Headrush? I'm pulling. I'm pulling a, a Stephen Bristol on, on uh, Rails Envy. Gosh. Oh, I don't know. You're not clued in, dude. What? Yeah. So, anyway, um, Kathy is a prominent blogger and a book writer. She uh, she speaks now on creating passionate users. And uh, we'll talk to <laughs> we'll talk to her today about that. This edition of the Web 2.0 show is brought to you by the Web 2.0 Expo in San Francisco. The Web 2.0 Expo is co-produced by TechWeb and O'Reilly Media. It is a conference and trade show for the rapidly growing ranks of designers, developers, product managers, entrepreneurs, VCs, marketers, and business strategists who are embracing the opportunities created by Web 2.0 technologies. Eat them up, baby. Web 2.0. Nice. Well done there, marketer. So essentially what Adam said is we're going to be there. There's going to be a lot of cool people there. So you should definitely check it out. And, of course, special thanks goes out to Janetti Chan. We should uh, have everyone follow her, don't you think? Uh, what's her Twitter? I'll, I'll pull for Janetti. Janetti. It's J-A-N-E-R-R-I. Janeri. Janeri. So, if you're going to follow Janetti Chan, follow her at twitter.com forward slash J-E-N-E-R-R-I. Her name is Janetti Chan. She is the best. Uh, Two tickets and a microphone. If you're interested in hanging out with Adam and I, you should definitely check out the Web 2.0 Expo. It's coming up, uh, like, next week. So April 22nd to the 25th uh, of the year 2008 in San Francisco. Also known as SF. SF. There's also one coming up in NYC. We'll give you more details after this one. Yeah, September 16th to the 19th. Uh, I'm quick on the draw. I got the webpage pulled up. I'm cheating. <laughs> this is, our, I guess, our second Future of Web Apps interview. We have Kathy Sierra with us. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, creating passionate users. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Kathy, um, what you've done in the past, and uh, what you're doing now. I've been a programmer for about 20 years, and I spent a lot of time as a game developer. The early days of Java, I started a developer community website around Java called javaranch.com, which has about three-quarters of a million unique visitors a month. It's it's a very successful community. It became much more successful after I stopped running it. (laughs) And um, along with my partner, Burt Bates, we created the headfirst book series for O'Reilly, and late 2004, I started a blog on creating passionate users. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of good content on the blog. I think if any, anyone's interested in how to build an awesome web app, they should definitely take a look at the blog. What are you doing now? I know that you, you don't blog on there anymore. 
Um, yeah, and actually I am coming back to the blog. It's been just about a year, but uh, probably start up again in the next few weeks. So it's time. I've been really working on this whole passionate users thing. Um, I started writing the book about it about three years ago and then kept suspending it because I kept learning more and more from feedback from companies I was interacting with and people on the blog. And so now I feel like it's a very differently evolved uh, book, and I'm just about to finish that. Uh, that's the main thing I've been working on and do some consulting on developer communities and passionate users for companies, but um, I'm less interested in that unless it's a company that expresses some serious commitment to trying to take the ideas seriously enough and be able to implement them. So it's been kind of heartbreaking to go into some of the some of the bigger companies and work with a group of people who, um, like the developers in the company, who are deeply committed to user happiness and user experience and a lot of the things we talk about for passionate users, and then they feel that they're not going to be able to implement their ideas by someone higher up in the company. Yeah, yeah. That would definitely be frustrating. Can you talk about the book at all that you're working on? Um, yeah, it's the, the it's called Creating Passionate Users, and it really lays out the formula that I know many people have heard me talk about before, um, although some of the things in the book are a little bit new or different than things I've actually talked about or written about on the blog. And it's this idea that if you reverse engineer passion by looking at things that people are passionate about and find the attributes that those things have in common and then look at uh, look at ways that we can take those common elements and use that as a map for developing. And it goes, of course, way beyond the product development. And although it, it can drive some aspects of marketing, it's not really a marketing book either. It's, it's quite literally how to create passionate users. So it's kind of a step-by-step -step formula starting from uh, you don't have any users at all to what happens when you have sort of ends with, you know, when you really have reached your goal and you have a, a huge passionate user community, uh, then you have to deal with the other side, which is that now you've, you've, you have passion, you have a lot of people who end up actually hating your product and possibly even hating your users for, you know, for being in the cult of whatever it is. So we talk about that whole range and how to make that happen at every step. So how do you know, like, what does it look like once you've reached that passionate user point? Like, how do you know when you've hit that point? Probably a good example, we, we created a, a recipe sharing website. Probably only have, like, a couple thousand users, but I, I think we're starting to gain passionate people. But, like, how do you know, like, when you, you've got a passionate community around a product? At the first stages, the, the thing that most defines passion is that, is that people are actually, they, they feel like they're kicking ass. They're doing something that they're getting better at and they're motivated to get better at it. So if people are seeking more knowledge or more practice or more experience or more involvement and they're motivated to keep participating, and not just to keep participating at a surface level, but the nature of their participation is more engaged and deeper and they're wanting to do more and explore more and learn and grow, that's 
that's the aspect of passion that, that determines its passion and not just like a fad or a, you know, kind of a passing interest. Another way, um, one of the things that, that we look for is if you have a site or any area where people are reviewing your product or service or, or giving testimonials, we look for testimonials or reviews that use first-person language. So, for example, in our book reviews, we're looking for people to not talk about, oh, I like the book or I like the authors or, you know, this is a great book or great authors. We want to hear people talk about themselves. So we find that where, and we did an analysis of this, of this with Amazon reviews, that where people are passionate, you'll have a tendency to see reviews that use first-person language where people will say, I did this. I was able to do that. Look at this thing I did. So we want to hear users talk about themselves more than talking about the product, the service, or anything else. So the more you can start to hear people talking about themselves, uh, then the more likely you are to have passionate users. And in fact, that can be a kind of a motivating or, or driving feature when you're designing, is to think, what could we do to get people to talk about themselves instead of us? It sounds like what you're saying is take the stance of designing for the experience and allow your users to kick ass yeah. and you know evangelize. Yes. And that it, it's a lot more motivating for people to um, – I know this sounds blindingly obvious, but it's amazing how often we have to, <laughs> to say it. It's a lot more motivating for people to be able to think about the cool things that they're going to be able to do or that they are doing as a result of – interacting with your app than it is to, to be motivated by how cool you are. So they're far more likely to come to your site or get involved with it because of what they'll be able to do, not because you have a lot of buzz or press or, you know, even though that may get their initial attention. Yeah. I don't know. We had an interesting thing happen. Like we, we were featured on Lifehacker for Tasty Planner and they sent, yeah, yeah, 10,000 visits. I don't know, it's probably got up to 15. But that's, you know, that's probably in line with what Dig would send. If the traffic comes from Dig, we find the traffic has more of a negative mindset versus the traffic that comes from Lifehacker was really a lot of engaged users. They were very interested in the product and they really tried to use it and gave. Does the mindset matter, like where they come from when they come to your application? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've all experienced that, the, the slash dot effect, you know, might not be all that deeply meaningful uh, to your, to your long-term su success or, you know, even your next week success. It really depends on why those people are there and what they expect to find and what they hope to find. But we never really think about what does it take to get traffic. I think that is the least interesting and useful question from a passionate user standpoint. Um, and, and yeah, in fact, it can be a real negative. The, the, the most interesting question is, what can we do, what can we build to help people kick ass, to help people start to generate that first person, you know, language and mindset of, you know, how cool it is for them. And everything else just about falls out of that. So if you're really creating something where people have that feeling those are the things that become successful, you know, with or without traffic. I mean, outside of a very small amount of initial bootstrapping, and, and sometimes that actually can take some time, but if, there's, if, if people are creating value for themselves, then everywhere you find that 
you start to find passion and evangelism and, you know, all the tools that we have on the web make those things easy to spread. So we don't really, you know, we don't ever think about how to generate uh, traffic. And in fact, so, so the Creating Passionate Users blog was in the Technorati Top 100 for a long time without, you know, ever following the usual patterns. I mean, we never thought about SEO. We never, in fact, we tried actively to not be on some of the, to be mentioned in some of the sites that would send a lot of traffic because that's, you know, you're right, that's where a lot of the negative stuff comes from. I also think um, when you mentioned Lifehacker and the people were more engaged, I, I mean, I think then, yes, that's a reflection of the passion in the Lifehacker community and the fact that um, those users, which is another attribute of passionate users, they have trust in Lifehacker and where Lifehacker sends them. So when we, when we would, or anyone would get traffic from a site where the users are really um, trusting that there is going to be something of value or it wouldn't be there. So I think we all need to think about uh, the trust our users put in us and, and you know, consider that, uh, you know, we have a responsibility when, once we have this user base to send them to places that, you know, we have some idea that it really is going to be something potentially useful for them. If someone were starting a web app today and uh, they were still fleshing out the idea, what what kind of advice would you give them when they're thinking about the idea or maybe starting to actually develop it? Um, I, I think the orientation and the questions they ask initially and as they're developing, they really have to, to just say over and over again. It, it just has to be so... Uh, you know, in the heads of the people designing, developing, anyone involved, whether it's one person or, you know, 15 people, how will this help the users kick ass? And that should drive every single decision. What features should be in, what features should not be in, um, you know, every single thing should be driven by that. And it's so hard to avoid thinking what cool thing can we do? And especially, I mean, coming from a software engineering background, it's it's really easy to think, what cool things can I build? Yeah, and creep. that's the least, yeah. Well, or even just, you know, a feature mismatch that, you know, you put something cool in, but it, it has, you know, not only does it not help the users in doing something, you know, meaningful, but, um, you know, it probably hurts. So, thinking all the time, how does this help the users? And, and one of the things that we've uh, found was helpful was for people to think, what could we do to generate that first-person language? What would we have to build to get someone to talk about themselves? And sometimes the answer to that is a really different question from what can we build that will get people to think we're really cool and that we have something really cool. That it, it's just that constant ongoing focus on what's in it for the user, and, and then being able to communicate that. So I think having that mindset um, can, can make a pretty profound difference on the things that you might put in your product, what your initial release might be. Um, and then the other things are how do you actually paint that picture to potential users? And again, the focus really needs to be on what, you know, what's this compelling thing that the user will get out of this? And, and you know, stepping away from the ego of what, awesome thing did we make. Kathy, you mentioned earlier about naturally 
gaining momentum, creating passionate users, obviously. Um, you know, I think you're right on the money. A passionate user is going to, A, evangelize about you and your site, and they're going to speak from the, the eye perspective and kick ass. They're going to help you get to that viral type of scenario where they're naturally going to be spreading your content and evangelizing you throughout the Internet. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking thinking about how you're going to get traffic is a lot less productive than thinking about how you can create this experience for the user because that does create an environment where then the user is going to do uh, all the talking that you could ever want or hope for. And, you know, and in a lot of cases before we're ready to scale possibly too much. Um, so, you know, that's the good problem that we usually hope to have. It's far more useful to think about what can we create for the user because evangelism, everywhere you find passion, you find user evangelism. So another question to ask fairly early on is, all right, let's assume that we're creating this thing that will give people that experience and will uh, potentially lead them to evangelize for us, are there tools for that evangelism that we can give our users? You know, what can we actually give them? And, you know, it's kind of the same old question of if you want them to talk, have you given them something to talk about? So giving them something that's that's useful and interesting for them to point other people to. Cassie, do you have any preferred methods or tools that you use in your projects to help your users evangelize? Uh, it depends on what the product is or what the service is. Um, you know, sometimes it, it's nothing more than some kind of an explanation or articulation of why this thing is meaningful to people. A lot of people who have a passion for something, they have a hard time explaining that passion to others. And, you know, we all know there's kind of that attitude of, well, my passion's really useful and, and makes sense and yours is lame. You know, it just, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. People who are passionate, you know, that passion is embodied by spending time. And that time is, is not understandable by people who don't share that passion. And so a, a lot of times they're just looking for some way to say, here, go look at this because this, this nails it. This tells you, this explains why this means so much to me or why I spend so much time doing this. And so, so just, you know, something that helps articulate for people why they have this passion. Yeah, I think probably the best, the best example of that would be Twitter. Like when I talk to someone about Twitter, they just have no clue what I'm talking about, what it does, why I would even want to use it. But I don't know, I've seen people get on like, my girlfriend got on like, I don't know, probably six months ago and didn't understand it and didn't want to use it even though she signed up for an account. And uh, because I was here, she started following my Twitter and like in a night she set up like 60 people and is now like interacting in that community. Well, Twitter Twitter's an interesting example because it, for a lot of reasons, but it's probably one of the things that's the most challenging to define why it's really useful and why people are, and you can see people are constantly making posts trying to explain it. And I think in that case, it's because something more complex and interesting has emerged from these basically the very simple uses. 
Um, so in that case, it's, it is really hard to define. Um, and, and it's one of those where people really just have to try it. If you have something where it just has to be experienced, uh, then the easier you can make that initial experience, the better. So, for example, in the real world, you know, it might be things where you say, you know, free friends and family, you know, trial or, you know, have a, you know, have a live meeting where people can come and, you know, hear and experience and talk to other people who are passionate about it. I mean, passion is contagious and um, people who are really passionate and enthusiastic about something can definitely infect other people. A lot of the things that we're all passionate about are things that someone else through sheer force of their you know, enthusiasm and passion have gotten us to try. And Twitter is one of those. A lot of people have been dragged, you know, kicking and screaming, like you just described, <laughs> to Twitter and then found themselves, you know, really enchanted, but but would never have imagined that to begin with. So it's, it, it is really important that we try to find ways to paint that picture for people so they can have a sense of why this would be cool. But again, Twitter is an example where even people who who didn't see it um, ha- have been dragged in by so many passionate people and then discovered it. Yeah. One other question I had uh, pertains to user feedback and how to decide when something should go into an application or when it shouldn't. Like, should it be determined by volume of request or uh, whether it just makes sense in the application or how would you determine based on user feedback once you start getting it? That's always one of the tough challenges. The that overarching question, how does this help people kick ass, is a question that can really help answer a lot of those questions about what goes in, what doesn't. But as your product progresses, it gets more complex than that. Because where there's passion, there's growth for the users. There's learning. There's advancement. So on one hand, you could keep a product that's just very simple and what they what they do with it is really simple. And that's fine in the beginning, but if there is no opportunity for growth, like the reason people don't continue to play tic-tac-toe, I mean, if they love puzzles and games, they're going to graduate to chess, something they can, you know, they can run with forever. So we, we need to have that path to growth to grow with our users or they're going to ultimately outgrow us and go somewhere else. So on one hand, we need to have growth and and give them sophisticated ways to do things. Now, one way to do that is to think about putting in features that have more depth than breadth. So having more depth behind features for more advanced users, you know, it's hard to have any rules of thumb, but that can sometimes be a lot more successful than putting in a breadth of features. Like there's a lot of pressure to allow people to do things multiple ways so they can just find, you know, the one way that works for them. And of course, that's really overwhelming, especially to new users. Um, But having more advancement in the features that you do have, um, that helps with that growth. And a lot of times companies will say, well, at some point, we have to split our product into multiple pieces. We just simply have to have an advanced version and a beginner version. And and keep the beginner version, you know, as simple as you can. And the other question when I said, well, you know, how does this help people kick ass? The important thing is to focus on what does this tool um, or what does this new feature really enable? Does it just make the tool more useful 
or does it allow the person to do something new and interesting and useful that they couldn't do before? So generally, it's better to provide something that allows the user to do something new and cool and interesting as opposed to adding a feature that just potentially, um, you know, allows you to say, oh, yeah, now our product does, you know, X, Y, Z. It's thinking about, no, what this means is that now you can do X, Y, Z, and that's something that helps them, you know, grow and learn. And then how you add the features. So obviously we don't want featureitis, but a problem with uh, adding new features is typically people have finally emerged in your product to the point where they don't suck using it. And this is why so many people don't want to upgrade to new versions, even though they need to. There, there won't be passion if they don't keep moving forward. But at some point, depending on how much they sucked in the beginning and how painful that was, they, uh, well, we all often don't want to upgrade because we just don't want to suck again. It's like I worked really hard to get to where I'm competent and I can do these things, and now you've just thrown some new stuff at, at me. And for growth, we need to to push those boundaries and add new things or at least encourage people to do more advanced things. But we have to find ways to do that while still saying, but you know what, we're going to be with you and it's worth it. And we know that it you know, might be a little bit painful, but hey, look at what you're going to be able to do. It's worth it. And you know, treat it like a game that you're going to get to the next level and that's going to be really useful. Kathy, can you recommend any books other than creating passionate users, of course, that could help kind of follow your path and take on some of the ideas that you have. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I could point to one book that encapsulates everything. The perspective is more, what can we learn from other domains who've figured out pieces of this puzzle really well? So, for example, the game industry has figured out some pieces of this really well. They obviously know how to keep people in, uh, or, or the good ones, know how to keep people really motivated and moving forward and coming back and coming back having an engaging experience. So everyone should be learning from game design. And there, there's a woman, Amy Jo Kim. So if you Google Amy Jo Kim, she has not only resources but a lot of great stuff that she's done and written and presented about applying game design principles to specifically to web apps. Um, she's got some great stuff. Just about anything that you could read on game principles is great. Um, but the entertainment industry has a lot to say as well. I mean, if you read a book on screenwriting, often one of the first things you'll see is that uh, when you're writing for, to, to make a film, you're creating an emotional experience. Well, when we're writing software, we are creating an emotional experience, whether we want to or not, and we should want to. But we have to be aware that we are because we're either creating a, uh, well, we might be creating a neutral experience. That's usually what we all hope for, because at least we don't want them to go, God, I, I suck, and this is a terrible product, and I hate this product, and I'm so angry. But it's always an emotional experience. What we want is for people to, to have the emotion of, I rule, <laughs> as a result of using our product. So filmmakers know how to, how to create an emotional experience and what that actually means. And we can use that to drive a lot of things that we do, especially around, you know, just describing the product and the growth path for the product and any way that we talk about the application and, how, you know, how we build community. And um, I know there are some, some books out recently on community. I'm not sure I have one in particular that I know well enough uh, to recommend, but obviously that's a big issue that people are talking about. 
Um, we have our own thoughts about, about community development that might differ from others. Um, but I would say uh, also anything about the brain. So there are some good books about the brain. As far as design, uh, when I worked at a division of Virgin Games a long time ago, the required piece of reading that we all had was a book called Flow. And uh, it it's just has flow, and then there's a colon, and then the subtitle is The Psychology of Optimal Experience. And stranded on a desert island, I can only take one book for designing a product that could create passionate users. That would be the one book. So that would be the book I'd most recommend. Any websites, blogs? Um, well, I can tell you some of the ones that I'm a fan of, but I don't actually remember some of the names. <laughs> some of the ones I read most often, uh, I, don't, I don't really uh, know the name, just like the name of my blog never mapped anywhere near the URL. Um, I read Gaping Void, so I just love just about anything uh, Hugh McLeod has to say. Seth Godin, he says a lot of the same points that we've been hearing from him for years and years, but it absolutely doesn't hurt to be reminded, and he always comes up with new examples. Um, Tara Hunt's blog. Um, I read that. I read a lot of geeky cognitive science blogs. and But more and more, these kinds of topics are starting to creep into places you wouldn't ordinarily find them, like some, you know, some coding blogs I'll find. They'll have like a really interesting geek marketing topic or something. Um, so back to the books, one of the things, one of the things that uh, I, I know it's obvious, but we have to keep in mind is that nobody is passionate about something they really suck at. So we have to think about how we're giving people information, whether it's how they're receiving information about how our app works or what they do with it through the app itself or later through our documentation or whatever it might be or the, the things that the, the ecosystem around our app, whether it's the you know community discussion forums or the wikis or however people are getting information and help about it, is to think about how people learn and process information. So we study a lot about cognitive load, how, how much is going into someone's head, and how much can they actually take, and what's the best way to break through that in the, in the quickest, least painful way for the user. Because obviously if they're, not, if they're not learning, learning enough to first get past the suck threshold and then hopefully continue on, you know, then you've lost them. So we do read books on cognitive load, and the author I would recommend, and you can just Google, she's got tons of books on Amazon, is Ruth Clark. So just about anything that you can find from Ruth Clark uh, will be a really useful book. So even though it's, it, it mainly has an educational bent about how to apply cognitive load to usually adult education and training, it's deeply helpful for thinking about you know, both how to train our users and also just how to design the software. And again, getting back to that feature question, how do you know what features put in? That's another uh, metric that you can look at is does it hurt cognitive load and how much? And is it worth the gain that we've just added to their, to their mental overhead? And of course, you know, all those things keep getting more and more difficult because people are trying uh, to multitask. So now whatever cognitive load they have from your application you, know, you also have to factor in everything else they're doing at the same time or trying to attend to. Can you tell us about anything super secret that you're working on, like uh, released right here, right now, uh, for all the world to know? Well, you kind of already answered it. She's going to come back to blogging. I always ask someone, like, what kind of super secret thing are you working on right now? 
but I, I think coming back to volume. <laughs> kind of, you know. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely coming back to blogging. And that's headrush.typepad.com? Yes. Yep. And uh, and there'll be some new stuff to talk about. But let's see, super secret thing I have never talked to anyone about is um, there fairly soon there will be some video too. So my partner Bert and I are going to be uh, producing a couple of video shows. So there'll be some video. Cool. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Kathy. Thank you. And that's a wrap.